Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome, listeners. It's Brad Kearns with a very special guest from across the globe, uh, nine time zones, I think. It's Dave Dolay in Switzerland. How are you, Dave? I'm good, Brad. How are you doing? It's good to be here. Oh, I'm so glad that we connected. I know it's hard to keep you up at night and um, um, get me up by 11 a.m. on the Pacific Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Not we, too bad, right? We now. made it's, it. It's this evening. Yeah, we made it. So some uh, enthusiastic listeners might recognize you from the cameo that I roped you into during your uh, family vacation to Los Angeles last summer when you and Romy, your wife, the author of yeah. Fruit Belly, uh, had that nice podcast in Malibu. But I thought we should start uh, backing up a little bit and have the listeners get to know you and what you're all about and the magnificent athletic feats that you've performed over your lifetime and still continue to do, which is the most super cool thing of all. I mean, there's a lot of ex-jocks out there uh, telling stories about the old days, but you're still hitting it pretty hard. So um, why don't you tell us uh, what you're doing in Switzerland there with your studios and your overall efforts, and then we'll go back into your athletic background. Yeah, well, you know, just for the record, my name is David Dole, and uh, I was born actually in Pasadena, California. Lived in Altadena um, until I was nine years old. Uh, My father's Swiss, mother U.S., uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, actually. Um, and they, they moved out to California kind of late 50s, early 60s. Uh, I was born in 1969. When I was nine years old, we, uh, we moved to Switzerland. My sister was uh, seven years younger than I am. So we were family four, moved to Switzerland. My father, coming from Switzerland, had you know, a good opportunity to take over a business with his brother and everything. And so I've been in Switzerland since, uh, since 78, um, done all my schooling uh, in Switzerland, got into sports pretty early, actually already back in the U.S., uh, played baseball, played soccer. Um, in Switzerland, continued to play soccer, baseball non-existent, so, you know, <laughs> I can leave that. <laughs> um, but I always, you know, always loved the team sports. Uh, a little bit later, I, I kind of got into some track and field and then uh, more seriously got into track and field when I was about uh, 15, 16 years old. Um and uh, got to the point where at about 2021, 20, I was able to make a living from running track. Um, you know, I had some sponsors and, you know, when you go to track meets, you get appearance money and obviously you run well and you get some, uh, some bonus money on top of that. So I was able to live from track, live off track and field for about uh, 10 years. So I was, um, let me see, I was about 31, 32 when I officially retired from track and field and got straight into personal training, basically. Um, in the beginning, you know, did some educations. Obviously, I, I knew some stuff from being an athlete, but I had to make the transition from being an athlete to to being a coach, being a trainer, which for me is a is a huge difference. Um, fortunately, I was I was aware of that pretty early on. Um, 
so did some education, always, you know, continue to do education. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, a must um, in different areas, be it, be it technical for training, be it motivational for my clients, but also for my team. Um, you know, started off, like I said, as a, as a one-on-one personal trainer, you know, one client, two clients, doing gigs for, for other studios, for other people that had uh, things to do with, with a bank, you know, they would try, would train people over the lunch hour at the, at the small fitness studio out of bank, for instance, you know, being in Zurich, we've got a lot of banks. Um, and so it's just kind of developed from there uh, up until the point where I started to build my own client base that I would train outdoors at their homes and, you know, in other people's gyms and, and just said, okay, I, you know, I, I want to, always wanted to kind of be my own boss. Um, my father had a, had his own business, always had his own business already back in California when we were in Switzerland as well. And so for me, it was a, it was a clear uh, goal to, to kind of uh, have my own thing going and possibly build it a little bit more into a, say, build it a little bit more into a business as opposed to just having a job that I, I owned, but I have a business that I own, meaning that I needed to, uh, to structure it so that I have a team uh, working together, uh, you know, helping each other out, feeding off of each other and kind of rocking everything a little bit higher and higher and getting better and better. And so I'm at a point now where um, I have two, per- have two personal training studios, actually just sold one, which is very cool. So that frees up my time a little bit because we're planning on building a new studio, which should open up in kind of 2017 um, which will be a little bit bigger. We're talking about 5,000 square feet. So things are good. And uh, yeah, you know, just uh, trying to be on top of things all the time. Um, yeah, but you said 5,000 square feet and you're supposed to be talking in meters, man. So what's what's the story? <laughs> I mean, the Swiss listeners have no idea how big that is. No, it's it's we're gonna be about 550 square meters. Ah, which is, it's that's pretty big. Wow. Yeah, that's it's about five and a half thousand square feet, somewhere <laughs> around there. I mean, it, I don't you know the exact numbers, but it's so it's gonna be um, you know similar similar philosophy um, extended so that we can have members uh, membership people coming in. There's gonna be a lot of coaching. We'll have anything from from small group all the way down to personal training. So small group, um, semi-private. So just, you know, each person with their own program and then personal training and stuff like that. So high quality, not a lot of uh, members, but just high quality training. That's the kind of direction that that we're going here. Um, well, it's, it's cool to find out that that uh, game is popular in Switzerland because we know in the major urban centers, especially the affluent areas of uh, America, Los Angeles, New York City, Bay Area, and so forth. Um, there's a lot of personal trainers making a good living and opening up their facilities and attracting people that are really committed. Um, but it, you know, it hasn't really taken hold, uh, spread like a- across the general population, I think, um, because people are reluctant to spend even a small amount of their income taking care of their health, which is disappointing. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, I guess Switzerland... Overall, I mean, it's a progressive, highly educated country, and it seems like it's overall, besides your facilities, how's the, how's the scene with training and, and the commitment to fitness? Well, I'll tell you one thing. We have a, Switzerland has a very high ratio of people that are active. Um, about a third of the, of the people in Switzerland do have some kind of regular workout, regular being kind of you know, three times a week, kind of a half an hour or more, they have some kind of physical activity. Um, we have about a third of the people kind of get once a week. And we have a third of people that does zip. 
um, <laughs> which doesn't mean that they're which doesn't mean that they're you know you know hugely unhealthy. They just don't work out. So they could they can also benefit from you know a mild workout every now and then. Um, when I started personal training, which is kind of in the year 2000, 2001, um, if you told somebody that you're a personal trainer, it's like, you know, people thought, okay, that's that's for, you know, Hollywood and, you know, top management of top, you know, whatever businesses. It's not for anybody. Um, so it was a lot of education, ed- educating the, the potential client in there because, there are people that will literally have a personal trainer, you know, three to five times a week, all, you know, open end. And there's other people that say, well, you know, I'll have a personal trainer for like three months or six months until I reach my, a certain goal or in preparation of a certain event. And then, you know, I'll stop just because I've reached my goal and I'll try to continue on on my own and maybe have a checkup, you know, once every other month or something. So there's they're completely different types of personal training clients. And so there's still a lot of education in there for people that don't realize that they could actually uh, profit a lot from, from, you know, having their training looked at um, from a personal trainer, from an expert, or even, you know, having a trainer that they would work with on a regular basis, one, two, three, four times a week. Right. Well said. I think that uh, message is taking hold a bit, especially with the chain fitness clubs. There's always a trainer ready to help you, but um, I remember getting into this game back in the uh, early days of my racing career and training some clients in Los Angeles. And mm. sometimes I felt like, you know, I was a little frustrated, like I didn't do much for the money I earned. And I, <laughs> I complained to um, Johnny G was my mentor, the, the creator of uh, spinning and a yeah. uh, great personal trainer for a long time. And I said, just I, I feel like I'm just babysitting people. And he said, you know, what you're giving to the client is that natural motivation and dedication to a healthy fit lifestyle. And that's very important. Even if you just are out there chit-chatting and going on a casual bike ride, um, it gets the person into the realm of commitment to fitness and hanging around with an expert. Even if you're not, you know, counting their reps and doing all the things like you see on the promo video, you're just uh, a part of their life. And I think that type of contribution is often overlooked. And then, you know, the people that are on the sidelines wondering why they can't stay motivated. Uh, maybe it's as simple as just hiring up a trainer to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, meet you at the at the gym in the morning. Well, you have to ask yourself, you know, why are you not motivated? I ask people like people say, you know, I don't like to work out. It's like you don't like to work out because you don't know what you're working out for. Now, if you have a reason to work out, all of a sudden you're going to be like, okay, maybe I don't really, really like to do these heavy sets or these long runs or these intense intervals. But since I'm doing it for a reason, all of a sudden it puts it into perspective. It's like, okay, you like to go to work? No. You like to get paid at the end of the month? Yes. So I think you like to go to work. You know what I'm saying? Because you like to get paid, you better like to go to work. Otherwise, you know, why don't you just stop working? You stop working out because you don't like the results you know, then you're not going to get any results. So if you know why you want to work out, why you want to get fit, why you're trying to improve, you know, some kind of health or or physical status, then uh, yeah, probably you'll start liking to work out. You think there's uh, some mistakes that the casual fitness enthusiast is making along those lines where they're messing with their motivation by perhaps overdoing it or just having the wrong approach? Huge mistakes, huge mistakes. Um, I think anybody who who manages to you know eventually get their sneakers on you know shorts t-shirt and you know gets out um onto the boardwalk to for a run or out to the forest in our case or you know just to the gym or with a personal trainer they're probably fairly motivated 
And when, when I get a client that's very motivated and is very unfit, that's a recipe, you know, for disaster. Because if I'm highly motivated, they're highly motivated. We start hitting it hard. The client, like, you know, next day feels like got hit by a greyhound and dragged. You know, that's that's not what they're supposed to feel like. And you can get there really quick. So it's actually it's it's very important to to guide them, to tell them, OK, we're going to we're going to progress. We're going to progress in a fashion that will enable and enable you to work out on a regular basis and not just, you know, once and then have a, you know, some some serious soreness and stiffness for five <laughs> days and then work out again, because that's what people do. You know, and that is very demotivating because your association mm. to to working out and what other people call enjoyable and like promoting health is pain. You know, and if, if you associate working out with pain all the time, that's not cool. You know, you're not going to be motivated for very long. And before you can start to see any kind of results, you just realize, that, you know, your knees hurt, your back hurts, your muscles are sore. You can't sit, can't stand. You know, you want to sit down and go to the toilet. You can't. You want to get up. You can't. I mean, you know, it's just that's what happens to so many people. And, and that's where you need a concept. Well, that's kind of goes back to my initial comment where, you know, the trainers of the mindset that they want to, you know, justify the money they're getting paid. And so they, they grind someone out for six weeks yep. in the name of, you know, quick weight loss or whatever. But the vision is distorted by both the trainer and the client when you're talking about that fallout, because I think anybody can be motivated over the short term, whether it's, um, you know, with incentives like on The Biggest Loser and winning money or just having that burst of adrenaline that'll carry you through three months of sessions with your trainer. And then when the dust settles and you kind of get back to trying to regulate yourself, you might find yourself exhausted for a few months because the approach was flawed. Yeah, I mean, you know, an, an active lifestyle is a way of life. Um, you know, working up to a special event, that's one thing. I can see that where you want to put in, you know, as much elbow grease as you can for like, you know, 10 weeks and you're going to get married. You want to look great on those photos. And then whatever happens after that, like, you know, what will be will be. But I mean, if you want to have a, a healthy lifestyle apart from just being fit, because I, I differ between people that are healthy and people that are healthy and fit. And then there's people that are fit, but they're actually not healthy. So if you look at their health status, you're like, hmm, dude, it's always like you got a sniffly nose. He's like, he's always complaining about some aches and pains. Works out a lot. Could actually produce, you know, some some good results if you, you ask him to in the gym or, you know, on the field or whatever. But always on the verge of, of being ill. That's, you know, for me... You know, I don't know. I'm 46. I don't. I don't need to go out and you know break myself just to show that I'm healthy and fit. So it's first and foremost, it's important to be healthy, and then build on that foundation of health and say, okay, now I'm going to add some fitness and not jeopardize my health in any way. Um, and that's kind of a big challenge. The more, the more uh, ambitious your goals are. I mean, when you were describing that. Um, situation, I'm like, oh, me as a pro triathlete, I was constantly on the edge of injury, illness, fatigue, exhaustion, burnout, um, but was able to produce yeah. a lot of watts on my bike or what have you. But um, how does the, the, the average or even the higher level enthusiast that has competitive goals, how do they, how do they balance that health and fitness? What's some of the tricks? Well, the first thing for me, I would say is to be aware that, you know, you produce great results on top of foundation of health. Um, yeah, you can produce great results if you're pushing it too hard, but it, I, don't, I don't think on the long run, 
it's worth it. I don't think at the end of of a person's life you'll look back and say, "Hmm, I wish I'd pushed a little harder on those intervals because you know I didn't <laughs> squeeze out that last little bit." I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Is the quote too? You know, exactly. doesn't That's happen. Not what you think? What you think is like. Hmm, I should have stretched more because now my back, you know, for back a <laughs> better word, is just effed up. You know, so if I'd stretched more, I'd be looser and I'd be able to still move. I I would have run just as fast, if not faster, with less resistance because I, you know, spent a little bit more time stretching and, and therefore, you know, the quality or my health health is better. So it's my job as a trainer, as a coach as an advisor to to make sure that my clients are aware of of things like it's not about always about pushing it's sometimes sometimes it's about just letting go you know letting go to be able to breathe properly the other day i had a uh, i had a presentation at, with a with a business and uh as about i don't know 30 40 people there and i was like okay what's the most important thing you know, in your kind of fitness, health activities, and people are like through mumbling, it's like it's breathing. Okay, anybody that's ever done yoga, for instance, <laughs> you know, breathing is huge, right? Now, you can go, what's the kind of the numbers? Numbers are kind of, you can go three weeks without food, you can go three days without drink, you know, you can go three minutes without air, without oxygen, and you're brain dead. So, you know, breathing is, is way more important than moving. So if you can breathe properly, and breathing affects everything, right? So if you breathe properly, you're going to be more relaxed. If you're more relaxed, your circulation is better, your tension is lower, your stress levels are lower, you can resist, you know, you're more tolerant to stress because you're not stressing yourself out by breathing weird, and therefore you can produce better when you do go to the office and you can kick some serious ass, right? So breathing, breathe. You know, those are one of the first things people come in, they're like, you know, a couple minutes late because they just, you know, hustled out of the office and stuff and they just got there. And they... <laughs> The train was late in Switzerland, right? That's the reason. <laughs> yeah, the tra- hey, trains are... Sorry, my train was running late. I'm late for my trains appointment. Trains are not late. Oh, that's right. I <laughs> forgot. If anyone works for Amtrak and is listening to this broadcast, realize that Swiss trains are never late, unlike Amtrak, which is almost always late. The Swiss public transportation system has got to be among the best. And I'm not just talking trains. I'm talking trains, trams, buses. I mean, you can plan a trip from one end to the other, although you know the country's not that big, but you can literally plan a trip from one end to the other and you will be on time. It's amazing. I, you know, I don't know how they do it really, but it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Also, like um, taking Amtrak here, I took this wonderful sunset uh, ride from Seattle to Vancouver, and it was leaving the station an hour late. <laughs> we're so sorry. We're this. We're that. And then, like, yeah. we got a few stations up the up the rails, and we stopped in the station for an inordinately long time. And and the announcement came that. Um, yeah, sorry for the delay. We're waiting for our sister train to arrive. And it's like the sister train was also late <laughs> and this later. train's an hour late. So what's wrong with the picture here? Why don't you just keep going and, you know, yeah. we'll meet on the way back or something. Jeez. Yeah. If anyway, is, diverting if from the, the bus is 20 yeah. seconds late. People are checking their watch going, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there must be a problem. Yeah. Um, so back to the client that's rushing into the gym, huffing and puffing and panting rather than taking those relaxing breaths. Mm. That's the, okay. That's the classical personal training client, you know, pretty stressed out because, you know, a lot of, a lot of responsibilities at work, probably family going, you know, stuff to do, not enough time, need to get it done yesterday. 
and uh, high expectations also towards their their physical training, but also their um, aesthetic appearance. I would say, you know, they they want to be looked at as somebody who is in control of the way they look. You know, they want to look healthy and vibrant, um, and so they come in and they're ready to go. You know, they're ready to to lift some weights and 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 push hard. But their their stress levels are, you know, tend to be so high that the first thing they need is to kind of de-stress before you can uh, you can start to move. Because lots of them, actually most of them, I would say, I don't have exact numbers. I don't really, you know, but I'd say probably like, you know, 90% of, of the clients that we deal with have a weight loss goal, not a huge weight loss goal. I'd say it's anywhere between, you know, five and and 20 kilos which you know just double that so 10 to 40 pounds um most of them can be more in the area of of you know 10 to 15 pounds so most of the people are not hugely overweight uh but at the same time to be able to to get rid of that that excess body fat efficiently you want to reduce stress levels you want to reduce your cortisol levels um and that'll just make it so much easier so the first thing they need to do is they need to chill and do you have a technique? I mean, are you taking them through some diaphragmatic breathing drills or is it more of, um, you know, when they start their workout, are you actually looking for those breathing rates and, and talking about it in the course of the session? Um, not so much, actually. I, uh, I kind of go by the, uh, the philosophy. I ask the client what they want and what they need. I kind of sneak that in there um, because lots of times what they need they're not, they aren't patient enough to want to do that. And so I'll, uh, that's, that's a, uh, hold on. I got to pull that out as a poll quote. <laughs> <laughs> you ask the client what they want and then sneak in what they need. That is brilliant, man. Yeah. You know, because people will be like, okay, I want to lose weight. Right. And then like, you know, you'll, you'll be looking at, like I said, you know, relaxation techniques, you know, how well do you sleep? It's like, yeah, I sleep a good five hours a night, you know, you know <laughs> one o'clock in the morning to six o'clock in the morning, you know, with the iPhone light shining in their light and their face just before they go to bed. So the quality of sleep is not going to be that good. So one of the first things I always, I'm, you know, I'm asking is how do you sleep? I'm asking, what do you have for breakfast? I'm, you know, asking what is the quality of your sleep? Uh, how much do you work? So I'm, I want to know stuff like that. But what I'll do is I'll have um, I'll have somebody do like a, a you know just an ass to grass squat you know just a basic you know all the way down feet flat in the ground squat and if they cannot do that they just they need to stretch right and since most people can't do that and those that can do that they're already pretty well off and I'll just go you know to the next step but I'll start with something as basic as that just to kind of show them that's before we load the body up with weights or before we go out and do, you know, hill sprints or before we can do some other crazy, whatever, where they, you know, they're thinking of doing, we need to set um, the basis for movement, which is, you know, being able to move full range of motion. And to get that, we need to stretch. Now, typically, if somebody doesn't know yoga, for instance, their stretching program is kind of like, you know, I'll stretch and it's going to take me about, you know, five minutes. So they'll, they'll try to stretch the whole body in five minutes, which is just not going to work because I'll have people get down into a, you know, some kind of a lunge stretch or something and try to get your elbows to the floor. And I'll say, you get down there, you know, and then I'll, you stay down where stay down there for at least 30 seconds, preferably a minute. Now, if you do a stretch for 15 seconds, you can get by holding your breath and squeezing, you know, and pulling a weird face. 
But if you want to stay down in that stretch for a minute or 90 seconds, you have to start breathing. Otherwise, you'll suffocate and die, which hasn't happened so far. So I guess it's working. But um, you know, I force people to, to breathe. And I put people in positions where that they, they have to hold the position for long enough that they don't have to think about the position anymore. They have to start thinking about breathing because otherwise, you know, you don't get the, the air, you don't get the oxygen. It's not going to happen. But if I tell them, you know, just if, you, if I told a person, you know, he's a he's kind of alpha type, he comes in, he's got, you know, no time and he needs to get it done yesterday. You know, why don't you lie down on the mat and, and kind of, you know, stretch out and start breathing? He's coming in thinking he's going to, you know, walk out with bulging biceps. And I'm talking about breathing. So he doesn't, he's not going to like that notion. But if I put him in a stretch where he's working hard and at the same time he's breathing hard, we get a double, you know, positive because he's getting the stretch and he's forced to breathe and he doesn't feel like he's he's wasting his time with a relaxation exercise. So I'll continue from there and get him tired enough <laughs> that he wants to take a break. So now I'll say, "Okay, you want to take breaks? <laughs> yeah, please let me take a break." And that's when he's happy when he can take, you know, a two minute break and breathe. Interesting. Well, I think any um, endurance athlete, especially, can make that connection. I mean, when you're climbing up the hill on the bike or trying to keep pace in the pack on the running track, um, you pretty much have to lock into your breathing when the when the pace gets difficult and kind of just regulate your energy and try to relax and, you know, maintain oh, yeah. that high effort. So breathing comes into play, especially when you're, you're going up to um, your capacity. Yeah. As soon as you have volume, if you have volume in your training where you, you can't make it through the volume of training, being completely tense, then you start optimizing, you know, things like that, that you weren't thinking about in the beginning. In the beginning, you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to get all these, you know, get these miles in, get these kilometers in, I'm going to lift all these weights, I'm going to do all these movements. Um, and then you get into it, and you get fatigued, you get fatigued. And then it's like, you have to breathe, you have to relax. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. So you can force relaxation, um, by kind of overloading, which a lot of athletes do. Um, but it can also backfire and, you know, you kind of work yourself into some, some weird injuries and tightnesses and you end up being at the chiropractor more than you, you're, you know, training, feeling free. Um, so I really, I really like to start with a, I like to start with a stretch, you know? Well, let me ask you this. Uh, can you even get away with a hundred meter effort with, um, not paying attention to your breathing? Um, no, no, <laughs> you, you cannot stay relaxed. If you know how, a, when a, when a, you know, like a shot putter, when they throw the shot or the javelin throw, when they throw, or when the, when the karate guy throws a punch, he goes, yeah, you know, that, that, that's that exhale for power. Yeah. Serena Williams. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. She's scary. I saw her once up close. Uh, I took a step back. <laughs> Anyways. And so, you know, like, you know, she can hit a tennis ball and that is like, ooh, ooh. Anyways, I mean, if you, if you, if you look at a sprint, you know, sprint is whatever, you know, better, it's 10 seconds, you know, depending on how fast you are. But let's say it's 10 seconds. Uh, in those 10 seconds to, to hold your breath continuously, you would just, you would cramp up tremendously. Um, so there's breathing. There's not much, if any, uh, it's completely, you know, non-reliant on oxygen. Um, so it's anaerobic, but you do breathe more for relaxation and rhythm. 
Um, if you didn't breathe, you would just tie up. You'd probably make it to about 30, 40 meters. Um, and then you'd tie up. You'd be so tight, you, you wouldn't make it. And then the last, you know, 50, 60 meters of a 100-meter sprint just becomes very long. <laughs> and speaking of the 100 meters, I have to say, man, you got this um, this modesty going so much that the listeners can skip right over that that breezy discussion of how you made a living in track and field. Because if you're not familiar with the sport... Um, very, very difficult to make a living at. And you ascended to the highest level in the world. You set the Swiss record that held for many, many years. And your best time in the 100 meters was 10.16. Is that right? 10.16. Yeah, that was uh, that was like a lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of the fastest humans ever on the earth. And, you know, right up there at Olympic level, um, it, it must have taken... You um, you started as a teenager, and one one question I have about that mm -hmm. is because um, I think a lot of people see um, Usain Bolt and they look at the magnificent physical gifts that he has, and they talk about his height, and he kind of comes off as a goofball with his posing and his chicken McNuggets diet. But talk about the relative contribution of genetics, first of all, to be out there in the hundred meter starting box at a high level, and then uh, the training contribution where. I mean, these folks work hard. I, I watch Allison Felix running at UCLA, and she is working like a mm. dog. And, you know, she's a pure sprinter where everyone thinks she's just this graceful, natural athlete, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Mm. Yeah, it's it's weird because on the one hand, the sprint is, you know, is about as high intensity as it can get. And at the same time, if you look at top runners, you see, you know, if you look at these these great slow slow motion pictures that we get these days, how relaxed that the top runners are, you know, even, you know, heading into the finish line. Um, and, and that's the, that's the hard part. I mean, you have to be, you, you know, you're, you're going as hard as you can and pushing and, and pulling and, you know, pumping the arms as hard as you can. And at the same time, if, if the muscles just seize up, you, you completely, you know, you, you stop movement. So you have to be relaxed and, you know, maximum intensity at the same time. And that takes practice. So you're doing, you know, drills and sprints and technique work, uh, you know, apart from stamina work um, to achieve that high level of performance. That's, it's a fascinating discipline. I mean, you can tell when you're in a stadium and, you, and it comes down to the, uh, the 100 meter sprint. I mean, the stadium goes quiet, like for no other discipline. Um, it's awesome. You know, it, it's, it's, yeah, super duper just to say. So how would a sprinter train, um, a high-level sprinter? I mean, how much time in the weight room? Are you doing any sort of aerobic conditioning like jogging? And how much, how often at the track were you really blowing it out and being explosive? Okay, if you are, if your body is, is in balance, you would want to be at the track, uh, you know, three to four times a week doing different forms of running and running drills. So you'll have workouts that you'll that'll look like you know a good warm up stretch some running drills and then let's say you're a hundred meter sprinter your longest uh, runs were probably going to be you know three hundred meters um, for just you know resistance just so you don't fatigue so you have that stamina to make it through lots of lots of workouts um, the majority of your stuff should be you know uh, kind of. 250, 150, that's your overdistance stuff. You're going to do, you know, two, three, four of those. Um, other workouts, you're going to do, you know, 
make maybe like a pyramid system. You're going to do like a, a 10, 30, 50, 80 meter sprint and then back down, you know, 80, 60, 40, 20, something like that. Just so you get those in-between distances and you can really rev up the speed and you're going to be spending you know three days a week in the gym in the weight room um getting conditioned getting strong injury prevention is uh, a huge part of that happens in the gym so showing your muscles how how long they can get under tension even more tension than almost than when you're out on the track so injury uh it's much easier to stay away from injury and then there's a lot of just, you know, there's such so much mental preparation, um, being able to go out there and uh, and push and not get too tight and, you know, not be, I don't know, intimidated by other athletes. And, you know, you get athletes. I mean, my mental game was always top. I, I was, you know, I, I practiced it, but I also had, I guess, just some natural gifts. And I mean, some athletes, to be honest, I, I sort of felt sorry for them because they just couldn't hack it. I mean, when you get out there and you got a Carl Lewis and a Olympic Christie, those were in my days, you know, those were the bad guys. And you get Michael Johnson. I mean, I ran against him a couple of times. I, unfortunately, obviously, you know, he was running, you know, in the league of his own, you know, sometimes after the acceleration phase, I'd look up and I'd think, what the fuck is he doing up there already? You know, he'd already <laughs> yeah. have like, you know, he'd have like, you know, five, six, seven steps on me. I was like, that's not right. I'm supposed to be pretty good. And he's just like, you know, dusting me off. But, you know, it, it, the mental game is huge and uh, you need to practice that as well. So I think a good sprinter should be on the track three, four times a week in the gym three times a week. Um, depending on the length of the workout, you know, maybe four times a week. I mean, you can sometimes have a, a, a 20 minute gym session and a, you know, 40, 40 minute, uh, track session combined practically. So it, it depends on how it's structured. You know, if you're more a very fast twitch, like acceleration type, um, you're going to be doing lots of stuff in the 10, 30, 60, 80 meter range to prepare for the hundred meters. If you're slightly maybe a taller, taller guy like I am, I'm 6'4". So um, the strong part of my race, I had a very good reaction time, but the strong part of my race was typically towards the end. So, you know, between 60 and 100 meters. Um, so I need to make sure that that my speed endurance is, is as good as it can be. Um, so I need to be doing, you know, 150s and, and 200s to prepare for the 100. Uh, in fact, one of the best, my best 100 meter years uh, was a year that I that I did a lot for the 200 in preparation, and you know I just ended up having a you know a, a very good year in the 100s because I did all the stamina work, and I just I was so loose um, that I could accelerate you know flat out and and just not cramp up, and it was just like yeah, that's, that's I think that's the year where I, I ran my personal best as well. Uh, so for the listeners that aren't um planning on entering 100 meters in a, in a future meet. Um, they're probably familiar with sprinting being one of the 10 primal blueprint laws. So um, we emphasize it strongly that this is part of the lifestyle, and that's one of the components of being healthy and fit. It has the anti-aging benefits and the hormonal benefits. We also have a, a fun line that appears often in books and on the blog that, um, you know, you, you never see a fat sprinter but you see plenty of fat endurance athletes. And so can you discuss mm -hmm. like how those sprint workouts at whatever level you're at and whatever, you know, fitness level you can handle, even if you can't handle impact, you can sprint on 
uh, devices are going uphill or whatever, but how does that contribute to fat loss goals that are such a priority in your, uh, with your clients? Sprinting is always going to be high intensity. So whether you're sprinting in a sense on a rowing machine, you know, doing rowing sprints, or you're sprinting up a hill, or you're sprinting flat out, or you're sprinting on a bicycle, um, sprinting per se is going to be high intensity. And so and high intensity has the effect that has, a, a, it's anabolic, it's not anabolic, it's, it's anabolic in a sense that it helps build something up. Whereas endurance, you know, long endurance type workouts are more catabolic. They build down, they, they help deteriorate and we deteriorate naturally anyway. So we want to do things that help build muscle mass, that put some tension on the muscle that helps to help the bones get more dense. Anything that we do that requires the body to bring in more nutrients to replenish and rebuild those are kind of the good things. And one of the most natural movements that we have is running. I mean, we were made to, to you know, be on our feet and to walk and run, not to swim. I mean, we can swim pretty good, but we weren't made to swim. We don't have gills and fins and stuff. I mean, we can climb trees, but we're not, you know, apes. We don't do it as good as they do, but we run pretty good. And, you know, we have pretty good acceleration, even compared to, I remember when Jesse Owens raced against that horse and stuff. Like we can accelerate, you know, we're, we're pretty good. And so we were made, our, our way of being was, you know, move from one place to the next place. And in case of danger, run, you know, run, climb a tree quick. You can't like, I mean, you know, this is, a, a, you know, an old comparison, but when the saber tooth tiger shows up, you can't be like, okay, you know, am I going to run fast or should I just kind of jog away or, you know, you're going to run, and you're going to run fast because otherwise, you know, <laughs> your cheeks are getting chewed on. Um, so you got to move quickly. And so that's how we were, we were, were made. Now, when we move and we move at a high intensity, that's a great stress release. Um, stress builds up in this, in, you know, in the face of, of danger um, and we need to get rid of it. And we were built to get rid of it fast. Like, you know, when you get angry, you should get angry and then let it go and not like keep it inside of you for days, weeks, years, half a lifetime. Um, so physical activity in a high intensity level is a great way to get rid of stress, especially when that activity does not last too long. So we actually don't want our workouts to last like for hours or, you know, hour and a half, two hours, we want to work out to last for 40 minutes tops. And if we do sprint type or interval type workouts, where we have a high enough intensity with our weight training, a high enough intensity with our sprinting, and we have rests in between, then our stress levels actually don't go up that high, which is great for health. We don't want continuous high level stress. We want short bursts of stress and then lots of recovery in between. And that's what you see if you look at a sprinter's workout. Oh, great distinction there. Uh, and, and talking about the, the primary sp stress hormone, cortisol, and the destructive effects it has on health when it's produced too often and, and lingers in the bloodstream too long and then has that catabolic effect. So when you do that short, intense workout, um, the spike of those stress hormones is desirable. It allows you to perform and down the road, your body adapts um, as it tries to return to homeostasis. It adapts by becoming stronger, leaner. And so I think you indirectly answered the question of, you know, when you shock your body with that high-intensity exercise that our, our genes expect and have expected throughout lifetime as a survival instinct, 
and now we don't need it to survive anymore, but we need it for assorted health matters. And I, I talk to so many fitness enthusiasts that just sort of skip over that need or that, um, you know, that requirement of a total balanced fitness program to sprint. I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit there. I, I was somehow the, the audio is breaking up a little bit. <laughs> I can't, didn't hear all of what you said, but what I've experienced with trainers when, they, when they're coaching their clients, what, what, as a trainer, we're always looking to keep the client healthy. And is the more high intensity that you go, the more the, the danger or the potential danger for injury increases. Um, so what I, what I want to do is I want to be aware of the fact that the end goal is to get my client doing high intensity workouts of, you know, different forms. Like I said, possibly on a cardio machine with weights outdoors, you know, running, using own body weight, throwing sandbags, whatever it is. I want my client to be able to do that. But for lots of people, when they're starting their workouts, they don't have the, the movement coordination to do things like that in a safe manner. But for health benefits, I need them to be able to do that. For performance, obviously, they need to be able to do that. And if weight loss, which is in you know lots of cases, a goal, if not the goal, weight loss is, is the issue then, you know, interval type workouts are the most efficient way to get rid of that body fat. Now, if my client sits at a desk all day, has a bad back and his hamstrings are, you know, short and his cardio, um, his, his cardiovascular system is not really up to par, he needs to, you know, work his way up there. And like I said in the beginning, if he's very motivated, it's kind of easy to skip the necessary parts in a workout as in, you know, mobilizing, getting on a foam roll, for instance, having a massage, getting the tissue worked on so the tissue quality is better so that when he does sprint, he's got some elasticity in the muscle and he doesn't pull a muscle. Because if a client pulls a muscle on my watch, then I've done something wrong because I'm not even training, you know, a top athlete, which, okay, if they pull a muscle, you can say, oh, it's unfortunate, but they're really, really pushing the limits. Whereas a client of mine who wants, you know, better health and fitness pulls a muscle then I've done a bad job. And so lots of trainers will back off of the high intensity stuff because they're not sure how they can get their clients there in a safe manner. Um, and so they end up not doing it and they end up not getting the, uh, the results that you'd want to get. So you want to get high intensity in your strength training. You want to get high intensity, you know, in your, in your running, in your rowing, but at the same time, you know, for people that are totally stressed out, go for a nice calming walk and just, you know, look out into the horizon. Right. We got those uh, diverse goals of getting the movement going and, and building your overall health and, and fitness so that you can one day progress toward doing those sprint workouts. But indeed, I think, um, you know, everyone can strive to gradually build the condition to where they can become sprinters of some semblance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, not everybody's going to be world class, <laughs> fortunately, but uh, you can be better than you were. And it doesn't really matter how fast you are it only matters how hard it is for you so when you're when you're working out hard for short periods of time with you know short breaks in between you're going to call that a form of interval training may it be with weights or own body weights or sprinting or on some cardio machine and you'll find the best health benefits in that type of workout uh dave before we end i want to just touch on that fascinating stuff you talked about with mark and i at lunch in malibu um, about the particulars of one's neurotransmitter balance, your mm -hmm. 
dominant neurotransmitter chemicals and your deficient ones. And you said that now there's a, a lot of the leading athletes, I heard Charles Poliquin talk about this stuff too, where you figure out your own personal makeup and this will inform and, and influence the optimal uh, training schedule. Do you want to talk a little about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for those that um, don't know what neurotransmitters are, I guess in the brain, the way the body functions, um, we have signaling in the brain be between, you know, between the cells in the brain, just call it that, that way. Um, the way that happens is we have uh, neurotransmitters to help those signals cross. Um, we have neurotransmitters that help us or kind of like the power neurotransmitters, which would be the dopamine, which gives us power, which makes us aggressive, which makes us, you know, able to, to make a decision on something, you know, quickly. Um, there's a speed neurotransmitter, which is acetylcholine. Um, there's a, uh, you know, relaxation neurotransmitters, happy neurotransmitters. So relaxation is kind of dopamine. That is what keeps us calm. Um, serotonin is what makes us happy. For instance, when we eat sugar, we produce uh, a lot of serotonin. That's why sugar and you know sweets make us happy, um, which is very addictive, which has led to a lot of problems, I guess, over the years, um, health problems and also weight problems. But the thing is, each person has a certain, a given profile. Their, that's their type. It's like a personality type. Um, but I almost say that the personality type is kind of guided by the neurotransmitter type. Now, as a trainer, I'm asking myself, okay, this athlete or this person, do they need more volume in their training? Do they need more intensity in their training? Are they going to do better with, you know, uh, five sets of six repetitions or will they do better with five sets of 10 repetitions? Um, that shouldn't only be, you know, my personal, what I think should happen it should be what's actually best for them. So if I determine a person's neurotransmitter type, it's a long questionnaire. You fill out a whole bunch of questions. Um, and in the end, you get the tendency that you'll say you'll be you know, dominant in serotonin. For instance, I'm dominant acetylcholine. For instance, I'm dominant acetylcholine. You have dominances, and then you'll have um, areas that you have certain deficiencies so your dominance is where that says, okay, you, you'll do, for instance, very well on, you know, short sets, pretty high intensity, maybe longer rest will get you better results than slightly longer sets or, you know, very long sets with very short rest and huge volume. So if I have a client that is made for lots of volume, first of all, if I give them too much rest, they'll get bored. If I don't give them enough volume, they just won't progress the way they will if I, as if I give them lots of volume. And on the, on the other hand, if I give them all this volume, they're likely to have some deficit on the other side in recovery. So I have to make sure that they recover adequately, possibly through you know, getting enough sleep, eating right, uh, supplementation with any kind of anything from your magnesium to, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do to improve the way that the workout is designed. And not every workout can be designed the same, even though I've got, you know, five people and they're all six foot tall, they all weigh 200 pounds. Um, they are the same goal. They might not be able to, or very likely not to be able to do the same workout. And that is because of the way their neurotransmitter profile is. Uh, so you told me to pick up this book, The Edge Effect, by Eric Braverman, and that mm -hmm. takes us into more detail. And also, um, you can obtain 
this very detailed questionnaire, which I did some research on this, and they found that um, they've, they can do laboratory tests and look at your chemistry, but they found that the questionnaire uh, delivered more accurate uh, results than even going in and getting a lab test on your neurotransmitters. So yep. um, you have to have the patience to answer carefully all these different personality things like, I often feel rushed during the day or you know whatever these strange questions are that you go through, true or false, and add up the points. Um, and interestingly with me, um, I came out with the same neurotransmitter as my dominant as well as my deficient. So yeah. um, how can that be uh, quickly? Well, it, it's a continuum. So you have a, it's on a continuum. You're between dopamine and um, GABA. You're between acetylcholine and serotonin. And you can be anywhere in between there. So you could be kind of more on the on the dopamine side, for instance, for your, your dominance, but at the same time, if you have a deficiency in dopamine and you're pushing yourself, you're not, you're not be, going to be able to recover adequately. So you may be the type that needs to go high volume, but at the same time, some reason you're not getting the, the sleep quality, you're not getting the nutrition that you need, you're not getting the nutrients that you need to be able to produce the adequate dopamine. So you're going to have a dominance and a deficiency in the same area. Interesting. So, uh, readers that uh, listeners that want to get into it more can order up that book and and think about some of those particulars. And I feel like even if you're not taking the test and ascribing to some strategy, um, it's it's important to reflect on your moods. And uh, I talked about a little bit of this with Andrew McNaughton on the Primal Endurance podcast. Um, you know, f- feeling like your training patterns are working for you rather than forcing it because someone said so or, uh, or, or those kind of things. So if you feel like you mm-hmm. need more rest than the next guy, and especially if you're training in a group, like when I was with the triathletes, I discovered that uh, my physiology was entirely different from someone I was training and racing next door to and had to adjust you know, to make it personal and optimal for me. Mm-hmm. Like I said, like for me, I'm, I'm a pretty strong acetylcholine type and acetylcholine is kind of the, the speed neurotransmitter, which kind of, you know, adds up being that I, you know, ended up spending a lifetime in, <laughs> in sprinting, but at the same time, I need a tremendous amount of sleep. And I realized that, you know, very early on, we'd go on training camp and, you know, there'd be four or five guys there and we were all sprinters. And, and I would just, you know, I would, I would, you know, put in an extra, you know, afternoon nap. I would sleep for like an hour and a half and I could, I could like sleep for an hour and a half and get up and go straight to the track. And a half an hour later, I was ready to go. Whereas some of the guys, if they, if they went to sleep, like, you know, after lunch, they'd be groggy for like, you know, two, three hours after they got up. So it didn't work for them, you know, and it worked fine for me. I could even do it at a track meet. I could like take a nap between two races, get up, have 20 minutes to go to the next race and be completely ready and have literally slept for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes in between. For me, that was awesome. (laughs) I was just like, shut off my system would kind of reboot and i'd be ready to go um and that doesn't work for everybody so you know if somebody's some people they can go out they can party they can not sleep and they can produce the next day for me that didn't work does it i need to get my beauty sleep you know it, it would it didn't work and so you yes you need to you know you need to listen to your your body but at the same time it's hard sometimes because if the message and the message these days you know how bad do you want it so there's no days off you know with no days off I would have been dead. I mean, you know, that, that so wouldn't have worked for me. No days off. I mean, from a, from a ambition standpoint, Mm. I tried it, you know, I tried to work out, you know, more, more and every day, 
And that would, that just, that doesn't work. It's, I need my recovery. Whereas some people, some guys, one of my training partners, in fact, I mean, he could probably, he could double my volume in training and sprints, you know, and he needed that to be able to produce his best results. So although we trained together, we didn't train the same volume, the same thing at the same time, you know, and that's something that, you know, had I known about terminating neurotransmitter types or just known about neurotransmitter types, you know, whatever, 25 years ago when I was young, um, that would have made it so much easier, you know, because we were guessing. We were like, you know, trying to figure out. We were basing our training programs on like other successful runners before us, but they weren't all the same, you know. And, you know, wherever you got some literature from, you were like, okay, if that guy did like that, that guy did like that, we'll try to do like kind of a melange, you know, kind of mix of, uh, of what, what those guys are doing. And so one year we do it, it turned out pretty good. The next year we tweak it a little bit, you know, but for a long time we weren't looking, we weren't seeing the right thing, you know. Um, we got it right, but we didn't know we had got it right, really, really right. So we're still looking. Whereas if you know that a person is a certain type and that's just the way, you know, on that type of program, that's how they're going to produce the best results. Then you really narrow it down to, okay, he needs high volume. He needs shorter recovery time and he needs more workouts a week. Or the other guy, okay, he needs, you know, you got to keep him, you got to keep it, you got to kind of keep mixing it up. It's like almost like do the same workout three times and then switch. And then other workout, workout B three times, and then switch back to workout A and then tweak it a little bit. If you do the same workout more than four times, he stops progressing. Whereas some people, you got to do the same workout every Monday, you know, or every fifth day for like four weeks and then you switch or six weeks and then you switch. If you switch too often, they never really progress. And so different types adapt at different speeds and they need different workouts how, they, how you structure the workout and that's huge and i'd say the more experienced an athlete is or a person is that works out the more important this becomes if i have a beginner that's never worked out mm-hmm. he can do anything he'll progress right <laughs> but the, you know it's that 80 20 rule you know that pareto principle the closer you get to your maximum the harder it is to find that little thing that's going to get you further and that's where, you know, determining your neurotransmitter types and being able to, to design your program accordingly becomes very helpful. Excellent. Very fascinating stuff and uh, applicable to everyone. Everyone can kind of keep in touch to get a sense whether, whether their workout pattern is, is working for them. So, Dave Dolay, thanks for taking the time oh, to visit with Brad, us. Um, my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, more info, you can type in Dave Dolay, D-O-L-L-E.com, right? And I, I hit my button here on, on Google, and it says, um, go ahead and translate it, and it does a pretty darn good job. So, um, you got to love that. But I, I especially like that. <laughs> I like that one-minute exercise video. If people want to really get fired up, we'll put it in the show notes. But talking about the neurotransmitters and the guy who can hit it, hit it hard and, and wipe himself out till he's collapsed on the ground in one minute, that's when you know you're dealing with a pure sprinter. Yeah, that's sprinter. about all I got right there. It's like, you know, I'll do that once or twice a week. That's about all I need, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Excellent. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us on another Primal Blueprint podcast. Have a great day, and thanks to Dave Dolay in Switzerland for joining us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Got a passion for Primal? Join Mark Sisson on a mission to save the world. 
Become a Primal Blueprint certified expert today. With our dollar down payment program, it's easier than ever. Just pay $1 to start and $89 a month for the next 12 months. The Primal Blueprint Expert Certification is the most comprehensive online Primal Paleo certification program of its kind. Explore the fascinating world of ancestral health from the comfort of your own home with this premier multimedia experience. Perfect for health and fitness professionals, as well as individuals looking to up-level their primal practice. Visit primalblueprint.com slash get certified to put a dollar down today.